evening, everyone. Thanks so much for coming to the forum. The Forum for Philosophy is a non-profit organisation. Um, we uh, are given some space here in the LSC, but we're not the LSC. We're a tiny little charity, and we're able to put on events like this because of kind people like yourselves who donate to us. If you want to be one of those kind people, you can find a link to our Just Giving page on our website. And if you go there too, you'll find this huge archive of our previous events that are all free, free to listen to, and you can subscribe to our podcast and so on there as well. Uh, this is also being recorded for our podcast, uh, so do be aware if you want to ask a question to wait for the roving microphone to find you so that everyone can hear you. Um, and, of course, be aware that your voice will be recorded and put out onto the internet and will live forevermore on the intertubes. Um, uh, please turn off the volume on your phone, if you would. Um, no need to turn off your phone completely. You're more than welcome to tweet along with the event. We have our own hashtag, LSE Forum. Uh, feel free to join the conversation there if that's your thing. Um, I think that's all I need to say. Uh, thank you so much for coming out tonight, and please join me in welcoming our fantastic pal. Good evening, everyone. Uh, thanks for coming. Welcome to the LSE. Welcome to this Forum for Philosophy event on replication crisis, question mark. I mean, replication is supposed to be the hallmark of good science. It's supposed to be that you do an experiment once, you get an interesting result, and then colleagues somewhere else in the world replicate the experiment and replicate the result, and you can get it over and over again. Uh, but over the last few years, scientists have been coming round to accept the view that it doesn't always work like that, that Many high-profile results you know, have gone into the literature, got a lot of attention, come to be widely accepted, and then someone's tried to replicate them, and it's turned out that the results just don't replicate. And this has started to happen so much that people have begun to talk about a replication crisis. I mean, we're going to be talking in this event about whether it really is a crisis. Is this something that points to serious flaws in the sciences, serious biases? Or is it just a normal part of science? Is it just part of the power of science to self-correct and weed out results that are wrong in order to get to the truth? Is this a problem? How serious is it? And what can be done to change the culture of science if it needs changing in such a way as to try and make the results more robust, more replicable? Uh, and it's a pleasure to be joined by three panelists who are coming to this crisis, question mark, from three different disciplines. Um, bringing their different perspectives to bear. They're Marcus Munafo, Professor of Biological Psychology at the University of Bristol, Laura Fortunato, anthropologist from the University of Oxford, and Alexander Bird, a philosopher of science from King's College London. Now, we're going to be talking about you know, the basics. What is the replication crisis? What is the story of it? How serious is it? We're going to be talking about competing analyses of you know, where this has come from, what the problem is. And we're going to be talking about the future, you know, what can be done to try and make science more replicable. And at various points throughout the, the event, there'll be chances for you to put your questions to the panel. But first of all, we're going to start off with a quick introduction from Marcus to tell us about the basics. I mean, what is the replication crisis? So there's been debate over the last 10 or so years in the biomedical literature around the extent to which the findings that enter into the published scientific literature are actually sufficiently robust, whether or not they are the right answer, if you like. Now, of course, what constitutes 
the right answer is not a trivial question, and it's not something that can necessarily be immediately be arrived at. But that's what has given rise to the current version, if you like, of this debate around reproducibility, whether or not you want to call it a crisis. It's worth noting that these aren't necessarily new conversations that we've been having. Charles Babbage wrote in the 1830s um, on the decline, uh, reflections on the decline of science in England, where he um, railed against what he saw as the um, lowering of standards of uh, the, the, the scientific enterprise across the board because of things like pressures to publish, for example, which are, not, um, which are the kinds of concerns that, that you hear talked about today. Uh, the, the perspective that I would bring to bear, I guess, is that one of the things that we tend to forget when we talk about science is that science is conducted by humans, and humans are fallible and subject to a range of different cognitive biases. And however well we um, train ourselves to protect ourselves against those biases, they will always be there, and by their nature they're in large part unconscious, so that we're not necessarily um, aware of the fact that they're shaping our interpretation of the data. There was a really nice study a few years ago which showed the same data, a heterogeneous meta-analysis which which combined multiple um, data sets together to give an answer that may or may not support the underlying premise, if you like, depending on your perspective, essentially. And those data were shown to two groups of people methodologists who had no personal investment in that topic, no skin in the game, if you like, and people who had published in that particular area themselves and published evidence that was supportive of that, of that notion. And the people who had published in that area were much more likely to believe that this heterogeneous, ambiguous meta-analysis supported their point of view than were the methodologists who were not personally invested in that field. So we bring our own perspective to the interpretation of data, which means that two different scientists will end up with different interpretations, potentially. And of course, as humans, we're not particularly good at admitting when we're wrong. You don't often hear people in debate say, oh, I'm so glad you've pointed out why I've been wrong all these years. It's just not human nature, and scientists are the same. So we have these cognitive biases that mean that we tend to see patterns in noise, we tend to see what we're looking for, our interpretations are shaped by confirmation bias, and that's compounded by the fact that scientists go into their subject because they're interested in it, because they want to find something out, which means that unless they're particularly careful, they'll get more excited when the results align with what they were hoping to find than when they don't, for example. And then coupled with that, and this is perhaps the thing that has changed since, say, Babbage's time, and certainly in the last 50 years or so, We work within incentive structures that place pressure on us to find things. We're always being told that we need to do groundbreaking work, that our work needs to be novel, that we need to find something. Our statistical tests are predicated on the idea that we can reject the absence of something and therefore claim that we have found something, in the majority of cases at least. And those pressures, again, can shape our behavior in ways that we're not particularly conscious of. So, for example, um, we're told all the time that we need to do groundbreaking work. And Ottilie Liza, who's a plant scientist at Cambridge, has this great quote which says, well, where does that metaphor come from? We break ground in order to build something. If all you do is groundbreaking, then all you end up with is holes in the ground. <laughs> and so these incentives are not necessarily helpful. And the metaphors that we use are perhaps in many cases past their sell-by dates. And we can reflect on what some of those metaphors are later. So for, for me, the situation we're in at the moment is not fundamentally a new situation in that there have always been concerns around the extent to which science is working as effectively and efficiently as it could do and it's healthy I think for us to reflect on how efficiently science is working and use the scientific method to try to understand better what 
is driving the kinds of concerns and the kinds of problems that people have been talking about. That part isn't new. The fact that scientists are human and bring their own biases to their interpretation of the data isn't new. But perhaps what has changed are the incentive structures that we're working with and the combination of those biases and those incentive structures perhaps has led us to a situation where the quality of the work that we produce is not as good as it could be. And this debate is, in many ways, a healthy um, corrective to allow us to reflect on which bits of science are working well, which bits could be improved, and how we can use that knowledge to improve the way in which we work in the future. Thanks. I mean, Marcus, can you, is it possible to pinpoint a particular moment at which the replication crisis started? Was there a sort of watershed moment? There was a paper in 2005 by Johnny Anidis, which was um, called Why Most Published Research Findings Are False. And that was essentially an argument from first principles that under a certain uh, number of fairly plausible assumptions, you could very easily get to the point where fewer than half of the published findings in the literature were uh, false, if you like. Um, now, of course, we should never necessarily aspire to absolutely everything that we do being correct because we need to take a certain degree of risk. So um, to some extent that 50% mark is, is arbitrary. This is a theoretical argument based on, you know, sample sizes are usually pretty small. It's it, publication bias. It's exciting things that get published. It, exactly. Lots of um, individual arguments that are not um, particularly controversial in and of themselves. So only certain types of results get published, that many of our studies are too small to generate robust or reliable findings, that maybe the effect sizes that we're looking for are smaller than we might hope for, and so on. So that theoretical argument, you know, doesn't give you a crisis. What, I mean, when, when you think of the examples that made people think, well, you know, maybe, maybe he's onto something, maybe this could be true. I don't think there was a single point. I mean, there was a, a gradual building of momentum around that narrative that science wasn't working as effectively as it could yeah. do. Um, you had, for example, the pharmaceutical industry claiming that fewer than half of the academic findings that it took into its drug discovery pipelines could be replicated. And for them, that wasn't adequate when it came to identifying new targets that they wanted to prosecute through those drug discovery pipelines. Then you had empirical efforts like the reproducibility project psychology yeah. that again came to that conclusion that about 40% of the published psychological literature could be replicated. Can you give us some examples of the things they found not, uh, not to replicate? Um, there have been any number. I mean, in my own personal experience, one of the areas that I worked in um, starting in the early 2000s and until relatively recently were um, candidate gene studies where you looked at individual genes on the basis of what you thought was the known neurobiology of a particular yeah. psychiatric condition. So for people example. would talk about the sort of schizophrenia gene. Yes, like I mean, there were, there were, it was more that they focused on individual genes, so the dopamine D2 receptor, the serotonin transporter, these ones that we were able to um, genotype that um, were linked to biological pathways that we thought were relevant. You saw lots and lots of studies that were, with hindsight, far too small. Yeah. And the writing was on the wall about at least 10 years ago that these studies were simply not generating robust findings. The writing was on the wall, sort of inside the community. Inside the genetics community, certainly. And yet you still see those studies being published. And really, they're doing nothing more than adding noise to the literature. I mean, Lara, were there sort of examples for you that made you think, whoa, this is actually a crisis? Not specifically in my own uh, discipline. I've, I've followed some cases in, in related uh, fields. Um, but those, the, the cases that you see are often actually to do with fraud. And so some um, um, 
some research or having done some, some sort of dishonest thing. Um, and those are not really related to this notion of a crisis. I think the fact that we use this term crisis may lead us to think that it's a sudden um, uh, occurrence, whereas some people argue that we should be talking about a, sort of a chronic problem more than an actual crisis. Well, the formulation of that sort of replication network in psychology was quite a big moment, wasn't it, where you know, people were thinking social psychology in particular... All of these priming effects, washing your hands makes your moral judgments more severe, things like that. People started to think, hang on, have we actually replicated any of these priming effects? To me, I mean, that, that kind of... That was when I first, I think, came across the term replication crisis. Sounds like from what you were saying, that inside these scientific communities in psychology, anthropology, people have been worrying about these things for much longer. There is some awareness that, that certainly the incentives that we have lead you to, um, sometimes we use, in, in keeping with the, the comment that Marcus has made, that we use terminology like, you know, you want a sexy narrative, you want a sexy yeah. story that you can sell. Um, so there, is aware, there has been awareness of those issues and, and processes that might distort um, the process of publication and uh, uh, the way we build knowledge. Uh, so I think wonder, is, the, is the crisis here a crisis of public relations? That the problems scientists have worried about their entire careers, the public didn't know about the problems. Now, over the last few years, really, problems of small sample sizes and publication bias and the negative results going in a file drawer, these are now public knowledge, and that's an uncomfortable thing. Absolutely. I do feel that there is certainly more awareness, partly because the public has, has learned about some of these issues and partly also because now we have research on research. So we have the data, for example, to do studies of what the incentives are that might lead to some of these biases in the literature. Um, so, so a field that is called meta-research, and that has really grown in, in the last 10, 15 years, perhaps. Science of science. The science of science, yeah. The meta-research so meta or... Um, uh, research on research. Um, so I think that probably has contributed as well uh, to the awareness in both uh, the communities but also in the public. So what about this question of which areas of science are affected? I mean, is it... I mean, Marcus, you mentioned genetics, and now you've talked about anthropology, psychology. Is this something that can be located to a particular area of science? Is it specific to psychology genetics, or do you think it's broader than that? I mean, Marcus, what do you think? I think the, the general issues are pretty much universal across academia in terms of the incentives. Now, of course, there'll be specific differences across disciplines. I think much of the debate is focused on the biomedical literature, yeah. broadly defined, but in part that's because there have been external stakeholders who have called out the low quality of the research that we've produced in a way that perhaps isn't the case in other disciplines. So we have had the pharmaceutical industry say the research that you generate is not good enough for our purposes and that is the kind of thing that makes funders sit up and pay, no, uh, pay attention, for example. Um, but in other areas there isn't necessarily that same external body that can, that can call out that low quality research in the same way. But when you speak to researchers from a range of different disciplines, they all say that actually broadly similar issues apply, even if some of the specifics are subtly different. Yeah. I mean, I've not heard much talk of the physical sciences here. Physics, chemistry, geology. Uh, do they also have a replication crisis that no one knows about? Or is this really distinctive to the biomedical sciences? Um, Alexander, do you want to...? 
I suspect that you'll be able to find some analogous problems in some of those, those areas. Um, but I think you won't find it, as it were, in the, in the top end. I mean, I don't think you know, there's going to be any chance that, as it were, the discovery of the Higgs boson in 2012 is going to be yeah. you know, found to be a, a, a result that fails replication. If it's very it hard to replicate, isn't it? Because there's only, I mean, only CERN can do this. Well, only, yes. Um, <laughs> But, but there... You know, so people give physicists too easy a ride on this? Um, I mean, that's a very, I mean that, that is going to be a very special case because um, you know, it's easy to generate vast quantities of data um, and therefore it's very easy to reach really high standards of statistical significance there. You know, you know, Many, many, many orders of magnitude greater than we're dealing with in psychology or, mm. uh, or, or in, in uh, biomedicine. But that's not to say there aren't other areas in physics. You know, we're done in small labs by small groups of researchers. Yeah. Uh, you know, one only has to, 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 to think of cold fusion. Um, to, you know, to have an example mm. in. in well, that's not. Yeah, I mean. That's, isn't that a notorious success of science correctly dismissing something as uh, failing to replicate? Right, but that, that, that uh, it was a success only because it was so interesting that people tried to replicate immediately rather than it enter into the lit, you know, more, mm -hmm. what there may well be more of, even in, in, in physics and chemistry, are sort of less exciting mm. but nonetheless positive results that get a publication for an author and which people don't bother to try and replicate because they're not quite exciting enough to deserve it until perhaps later, later So there later could be a crisis on. bubbling under the surface. It does lead me to wonder, is it, is it though something special about humans? That in research on humans, you're often stuck with sample sizes that are much, much smaller than you'd really want. Whereas if you're researching a chemical substance or something like that, you can have as much of it as you need or you can bang as many particles into each other as, as you need to get them. A, a significant result. Is it, is it a problem from studying humans? I, I mean, I think there is, not just humans, but animals and anything where there is a, a sort of, a, you know, um, a, some kind of biological unit that uh, is your subject of, of study. But actually, I think going back to those um, examples from other disciplines, I mean, first of all, um, cold fusion replicated initially. Um, there were a few claims that they, uh, you know, that the same uh, phenomenon could be replicated, um, but the cycle was sufficiently rapid that that essentially extinguished much more quickly than in other areas. Mm. But I think that's because of um, the, the 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 way in which that field has um, moved over time to the point where rigorous attempts to replicate are part of how it works in a way that isn't quite the same in, say, the biomedical sciences. It's also worth noting that, um, speaking to senior physicists who worked on the ATLAS project that discovered the Higgs boson, they say, well, physics went through, particle physics went through its replication crisis in the 1950s, and they realized then that many of their findings were not sufficiently robust, and that's when they started to introduce much higher standards of statistical stringency. So one of the other differences between fields is just where they are in this process, if you like, rather than the process being fundamentally different. Physics is a much older science than uh, psychology or any of the other biomedical This science. could be part of the process through which a science matures. Yeah. yeah. You definitely get physicists trying to put across that narrative. Right? Their science is just more mature. They've just adopted more stringent methodological standards. I mean, it's interesting to 
get your views on whether you think that's, that's true or not, or whether we're... One respect in which physics is, is more mature is, is that there is a really strong underlying theory from which mm. the predictions that they are testing yeah. you know, originate. So the Higgs boson well, hypothesis wasn't just a self-standing hypothesis that someone... Mm. wasn't that, just you know, the intuition. Higgs just thought, thought up, yes, yeah. it would be cool if it were true, but rather it fitted into the standard model of, mm. uh, of, of physics in a, in a neat way. In a sense, it was a, a prediction, along with certain assumptions that yeah. seemed plausible, of this standard model, which was... Mm hugely confirmed already so it would have been an enormous mm. surprise if they hadn't found the Higgs boson. So having a proper you know, that seems to be that, that, that mm. body of really reliable uh, all these well confirmed underlying theories, one mm. thing also it's lacking in different ways in some areas of, of science. Other yeah. areas so of having science. this proper theoretical framework that implies clear predictions is, is more important than sometimes assumed. You don't always have that, though. For mm -hmm. example, in the historical sciences, which includes evolutionary biology, geology, for mm -hmm. example, you don't necessarily have that predictive um, yeah. uh, approach. Um, so we may be stuck with less precision. Um, uh, and I, I think that's fine. We just have to accept that humans are complicated and so there are certain difficulties in studying them. Um, the problem, I think, comes when we try and apply those same standards of uh, proof, if you like, and, and present the results in such a sort of uh, certain uh, way that then, then you end up in, with, with problems. That would be my, my view as an anthropologist who's come to realize that humans are messy and human history is, is messy and complicated. I mean, I think our, our theories are, are certainly not at the point where we could make quantitative predictions. In physics, you can. You can specify very precisely what a universe with and without a Higgs boson looks like numerically, and then test that, whereas in most of the, the life sciences, the biomedical sciences, you could say, well, this group will do better or you know, score higher on a particular measure than this group, but that's pretty much it. Good. So you think it's not a coincidence that there's a replication crisis in you know, social science and life sciences, but arguably not physics. So this is it's affecting more severely those areas of science where there are less developed theoretical frameworks leading to less precise predictions? That would be my sense. I mean, I don't have any hard data to back that up, but, um, but certainly I think that's, that's part of the problem, if you like, that it's very difficult to, um, to know when you've actually falsified uh, a finding, for example, mm -hmm. because it may just be that the effect is slightly less than you anticipated, and therefore your sample size is not adequate to be able to estimate it precisely enough. And, and it's difficult to tell those two apart. So whereas in some um, sciences with a more mature history, if you like, you can say quite certainly, well, this finding precludes this possibility. In most of the biomedical sciences, it's much more vague than that. Just briefly, it's, we put a question mark in the title of this event, replication crisis. Um, do you think replication crisis is actually a good term for what is going on? I mean, I don't personally. I'd be interested in... What do you call it? Well, I think it's much more of an opportunity. I mean, I think it's very healthy for us to reflect on... I know that sounds trite, but it really is. A much more, well, yeah, there's no such thing as a crisis, just an opportunity. I don't say to display flexibility. That's not a very on-message in this context. Um, but, uh, no, I mean, I think it's a healthy process of just reflecting on, on what we're doing and whether we're doing it well enough. I think the crisis narrative 
you could argue, stemmed from those who had a vested interest in pushing that particular narrative. So I said earlier that there are some people who are invested in particular literatures and therefore more likely to interpret them in a certain way. And the same is true of meta-researchers. You know, people get invited to come and um, be on you know, nice panels um, having interesting conversations on the basis of the fact that they've talked about replication and reproducibility, for example. I have to be careful that I don't become too invested in a particular narrative. And one way to to push your articles and to make them um, be noticed, for example, is to have provocative titles. So you think the term replication crisis itself exemplifies some of the problems that led to the replication opportunity? I think it does. I think you could argue that, at least. (laughs) Lara? I think we have to be careful, as Marcus says, that we don't fall into the sort of same trap to... You have a confirmation bias to see a crisis if there isn't see a crisis. crisis everywhere. <laughs> yeah, so I, again, I do like thinking in terms of a, of a chronic issue and some of the incentives lead to, to those um, issues. And that sounds less good than opportunity. <laughs> Replication, chronic issue. Well, I, in some ways, but it also um, does uh, lead us to think how we can... Um, cure all, <laughs> uh, some of the underlying uh, problems. So in a sense, yes, I do think, I do agree that it is an opportunity. I think it's a problem. Um, there's no doubt about that, that, about it. And in fact, there may be several problems, and that's one of the things we'll be discussing, I think. Yep. Um, and so I think as it is important for science and indeed people who are interested in these things more generally to understand what's going on. This is not satisfactory just to, yeah. just to leave it, and, yeah. and I guess that's what we're not doing. And one, uh, one reason why that's important, apart from the value of doing good science and you know, the complete waste of money and good you know, intellect going into to doing poor science, is that is beginning to, in fact, the vision of science that, that is held outside. So... One thing I saw particularly worrying when doing research into this area was an article in a U.S. business magazine mm. uh, saying, yeah, yeah, we shouldn't get so worried by reports of you know, a climate crisis because you know, science itself can't be sure that its mm. results are, are reliable. Hasn't so, been replicated on another planet right. somewhere. Well, exactly. Ex- exactly. So, yes, yeah, so pointing to the replication crisis as a reason not to be confident right. in Right, I mean, that, that, it, that question of whether it should undermine our trust in science uh, yeah, is, is one we'll, we'll come back to. It would be great at this point to take a couple of questions from the audience on the, the replication problem opportunity or chronic issue, if you have any dis- sort of descriptive questions about what the, what the crisis is, we have time for that. There's a question from the back. Yes, please wait for the mic. Mm. Is the microphone on, by the way? We can, we can hear you, but it doesn't sound like the microphone is on. Shall I, shall I ball out? Does that make it? Can you hear me now? We can hear you, yeah, go for okay, it. Right. Um, one of the things that um, did um, concern me is that although there has been uh, fraud in various areas, uh, one of the things that concerns me in the last, say, 30 or 40 years is the fact that industry is at 
is giving financial support to a lot of uh, scientific research. This is particularly in the people who are working in the field of pharmacology and so forth. And I think that is a very corrupting influence because certain things, if, there looks, if, a, scient if a pharmacologist looks as if he's going to get some research off the ground, industry comes in and then starts to dictate what can be published and what can't be published. I think that's a very mm. corrupting influence. Yeah, good question for, yeah, for uh, all of the panel, I think. Should we start with Marcus? Um, so I should say, um, in the interest of full disclosure, I have worked with um, industry in the past, although not uh, to a substantial degree, I guess. Um, I mean, I think you're right. Anything where there is a financial vested interest um, has the potential to shape the results of research, particularly when that industry partner has a say in what's published and what's not published. On the other hand, I think there's an interesting way in which we can look at um, the, the pharmaceutical industry pipeline from drug discovery all the way through to clinical trials and reflect on the different incentives that operate along that pipeline, if you like. There are known problems at the, at the end of the pipeline when a company has invested millions or billions in a compound and wants to recoup that investment, where inconvenient results are not published and only the results which present their new compound in the best light are published. And Ben Goldacre has written extensively about those problems. But at the other end of the pipeline, the incentives are actually much more pure in a sense in that um, farmer executives are incentivized to make a correct go or no-go decision on a novel compound because if they make the correct decision, they either progress a compound that will make the company lots of money or stop a compound that will eventually cost the company a lot of money. So, and they don't have pressure to publish or to get grants and that kind of thing. So you could argue that the incentives at that end of the pharma pipeline are better aligned with what we want because the problem with academic scientists is that we're not incentivized to get the right answer. We're incentivized to publish and we're incentivized to get grants. The things that we get promoted for, the things that we get rewarded for are not getting the right answer, partly because getting the right answer is not a trivial question, you know, what that means, but we're incentivized to go after these proxies that are often then become an end in themselves, if you like, and a very poor end in themselves. One could argue, though, that we, as scientists ourselves, we have conflicts uh, in, of interest aligned with what Marcus just said in terms of getting the papers out. So I don't think it's just the pharmaceutical industry or sort of industry generally that brings um, a potential conflict of interest. There is, is more of a financial conflict, uh, but we do have conflicts in getting our ideas out there and then the, the uh, recognition that comes with that. So... Um, I would probably think it's a broader issue than, uh, than, than, than work with industry. Thanks. Yeah, I mean, we'll take more questions later, uh, hopefully when we have a working microphone. But now let's move on to this second key issue of, you know, the roots of the crisis, where it comes from, what, the, what these problems are. We've called it a problem or a chronic issue, what the real roots of the problem are. Um, and, I mean, Alexander, you have a particular take on this, right, which is that this is really nothing to worry about at all. Well, um, what I'd say, I wouldn't say necessarily nothing to worry about, but rather it's not necessarily that we should worry about scientists either being consciously fraudulent or cutting corners or engaging in uh, questionable research practices. So um, even if half of all research findings are false, you know, yeah. if, the, if the Johnny Anidis claim is correct... That's right. So it could be, so it's just worth bearing in mind that it could well be that 
a large proportion of these failed replications are signs not of poor science, but, are, but just what you would expect to find given the statistical standards that we currently have. And so the analogy that I use is, 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 is this. Um, you think of truth as being a rare thing out there. Um, and it's a bit like a rare disease. So you have a screening program for a very rare disease, um, and you put everybody through it, and you get, you get positive results for certain individuals. Does that mean they've got the disease? Well, actually, in many, for many screening programs, it's much more likely that it's a false positive. It's one of the very large majority of people without a disease yeah. who's just shown up as, you know, as a false positive, more likely that than someone who, the rare instance of someone who's got the disease being correctly uh, picked. That's an idea in medicine, right? Yeah, if you're looking for a very, very rare condition and you have a very, very good test, it's still the case that most of the positive results from that test are false positives simply because the, the base rate of the disease is so, so low. That's right. So yeah, the, the, false, positives, you know, the pos false positives amongst people who don't have disease can you know, swamp, outweigh the yeah. true positives from the very small number that do have the disease. So if you think of truth as like a rare, yeah, rare disease, it's mm. easy to come up with hypotheses. It's less easy to come up with hypotheses that are actually true. And mm. with our current statistical standards, we can show that pretty high proportion of all the positive results, about a, yeah, on some very reasonable assumptions, about a third of the, all the positive results um, will come from the, you know, the majority of false hypotheses throwing up some false positives. Mm. Um, that's because we, in the relevant sciences, the biomedical sciences and psychology, you work with yeah, uh, call an alpha of 5%, which roughly means that we'll allow mm. 1 in 20 of false hypotheses to have a positive result that we accept. Mm. Um, and that's, yeah, that's, um, that's what will generate these false positives. It's not going to generate half of all published findings being false, is it, if it's 1 in 20? It will generate about a third. Why is that? Well, do you, if you want the explanation, is you can imagine 100 hypotheses being tested... Mm. 10 of which, you know, 10%, 1 in 10 are true, yeah. and 90, are, 90 are, are, are false. So we do our tests, okay? So let's think about the 10 which are true. Well, the standard way of doing things, if it's a good, good test, um, you'll get probably about 8 of those 10 true, getting a positive result, yeah, which is what you want. Okay, yeah. so you've got 8 positives there. And now think about the 90 false hypotheses. Now, I said that we work with this you know, alpha of 5%, which means that we'll allow... Well, we, 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 it's going to be that um, one in 20 false hypotheses mm. will give a positive result. Yeah. You know, that, that, um, and, but what's, what's one in 20... You know, yeah. One 20th of uh, 90, well, it's about four and a half, OK? So you'll get, four, mm. say, four, to be conservative, four positive results amongst these 90... False hypotheses. Yeah. So we've got 12 positive results, eight mm. of which are from true hypotheses, four of which are from false, false hypotheses. So we'll get a third in yeah. this case. So because the, the number of false hypotheses you come up with is just so much larger yeah. than the number of true ones, 
even if you've got really, really good methods, really, really good tests for and working out whether these hypotheses are true, it's still going to be the case mm. that there'll be more false positives than, than true ones. And there's reason to think that, that, that we will have this situation of having many more false hypotheses tested than, than true mm. ones in these relevant areas. Um, just, it's really difficult. Um, you know, medicine, you know, it, we've got some underlying theory, we do basic science, but um, it's very incomplete. Yeah. So coming up with a, anything that's better than a reasonable guess is really, really mm. difficult in, uh, in, in medicine. Mm. But also the, the incentives you know, are, are there. You know, exciting results are the ones that get published and will make your name. Yeah. But you know, the more exciting results are inevitably going to be hypotheses are le less likely to be true in the first place. Mm. So the slogan is, you know, truth is a rare disease. It, it's yeah. such a rare disease that even if we have really, really good methods for testing a hypothesis for possessing the truth disease, we'll still end up with far, far more false positives than true hypotheses at the end of it. Yeah, I mean, so this is like an attempt to sort of take the sting out of the replication crisis and, and saying, don't worry, scientists, it's okay, truth is just a rare disease. Right, but then that does mean that one has to look on a positive result with different eyes. Because you yeah. think, oh, we've got really good methods, and therefore if we get a positive result, it must be true. You know, yeah. saying, well, actually, no, hold on. Just because something's been published with your know, nice statistical result, actually it's still... You know, in this example, yeah, one-third chance of being yeah. false. Sounds like you're saying we should just lower our expectations, that people have had expectations of scientists that are too high. Well, you, can, you could lower your expectations, but there are other things you could do. You think, well, in some areas we possibly don't want to lower our expectations, in which case we have to make our standards even higher. Yeah, we have to go a little bit more in the direction of the, you know, the, the particle physicists. That means carrying out experiments with, well, you talked about people, with you know, larger samples. Because that's going to be more expensive. That means, therefore, you can have carrying out fewer experiments. Mm. And then you have to, work, have to think about whether that cost is, yeah. is worth it. You're having fewer results, but so you get ones the, which are more reliable. Right, this tough trade-off like, between you know, how many hypotheses you mm. test mm. and the size of the sample and the quality and power of the data you get in testing each one. So, for example, in, in, uh, in, in medicine, one way to get around this is have the multi-center trials. You know, many hospitals will be working together on one big project so that they, you, you, the number of uh, patients in a trial is, is sufficiently large to, you know, to be able to produce a robust uh, finding. That's less common in psychology, I understand, but it, people are beginning to think in that direction. Is that not, is that not right? That's mm. correct. There are some initiatives of these uh, multi-lab um, studies in psychology, mm. um, relatively new, but have, they've been very successful. Mm. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's happening in other areas too. I mean, Nara, what do you think of this diagnosis of where the crisis comes from, this truth is a rare disease diagnosis? I think that applies, um, yeah, across across areas. I think it would definitely apply in my field as well. For example, of, of evolutionary uh, anthropology, where um, we're too ready, perhaps, to accept 
um, statistical uh, evidence for an effect, and then uh, we like to apply an evolutionary narrative uh, to that result. And, and we don't often have very strong basis to attach to the evolutionary narrative. It's just what we do. Um, and I think so as soon as you get a few significant results, the ne- next move for everyone is to come up with an evolutionary story that makes it all plausible. Yeah, and you often start with an evolutionary story or you start with a broad comparative view of this happens in other species, this happens in other primate species, hence this is what we predict. Do you give an example of this happening? I can. I've actually done some work um, on... Um, so a replication of a study that was published um, in 2005 where the authors claimed to have found an effect of the color red on... Um, the likelihood of winning a um, fight in the Olympics. And the um, story that that started from is that in uh, several species of uh, animals, including primates and birds, red coloration signals uh, aggressiveness. Um, and so, like in boxing, they have the red one and the blue one. Yeah, so they, they took Olympic sports in which, so the authors took Olympic sports in which the uh, competitors are randomly assigned red or blue uniforms, so boxing, taekwondo, uh, Greco-Roman wrestling, and freestyle wrestling. And the hypothesis was that if uh, red does confer an advantage to these athletes, um, then uh, we'll find more than 50% of the bouts being won by the competitors wearing red. And they, they did. Um, it wasn't a very strong effect, but they did find this, and they got it published in Nature. And this has generated 10 years of, well, over 10 years now, approaching 20 years of research of people finding these effects in other, in other systems, uh, in the lab sometimes. And a collaborator and I have actually gone and looked at these data, and we weren't very convinced by the original analysis. Um, and then we also... F- uh, coded up the corresponding data for a different Olympics, so uh, the 2008 Beijing Olympics. The original study was on the 2004 uh, Athens Olympics. And we found not only that the result didn't replicate in the other independent data set, uh, but also that there is a very subtle uh, effect in the way the tournaments are structured in, in these sports, where um, you, you can, we know why they found uh, more wins by the red-wearing competitors in 2004, while we find more wins by the blue-wearing competitors uh, in 2008. It's simply an artifact of how the tournaments are built. Um, and so we've been able to... How, how does that work? Well, they, they just pick a colour and give the best ones that colour? No, not at all. So in both... In both um, the, in, in these sports, in, in both Olympics, the allocation of colours was random in the first um, uh, in the first round of bouts. Uh, but then there is a mechanism whereby the competitor who is at the top of the bracket, so the, at the top of the pair, uh, will be assigned red or blue. So if you, by chance, end up with uh, strong competitors wearing red, then they may be more likely to wear red through the end of the tournament. In 2004, in 2008, some of the rules changed. Simply, um, uh, the way some of the incomplete tournaments were placed on on the tree, 
um, and that leads to a bias towards blue. So it's a very subtle thing. Um, it took us a long time to work this out. The problem is that it doesn't stop the researchers from attaching an evolutionary story. This so they, happens. Yeah, they were trying to explain this as, you know, the product of millions of years of evolution, yeah. and it was actually the rules of the boxing tournament. Yeah, that's what we, that's what we are trying to... Well, that's what we claim, and it's, it's really interesting because... So their argument seemed very plausible. We see this in mandrels. Mandrels have, especially male mandrels, have this sort of patches of red... Um, coloration on their face, for example, on their uh, backsides, and um, it's an, it's a it's a very compelling story. You can you can tell the story. Um, so this is going beyond the kind of truth is a rare disease explanation, isn't it? It's saying there's other other factors at work here. The the tendency to be drawn towards results where you think, oh, I can tell a plausible evolutionary story about where that came from, and then to suddenly jump to the story rather than first asking the question, how replicable is this result? It's very easy, right? We, we like telling stories, and it's very easy to do that, and, and evolutionary stories are very compelling. Um, and if you can tell a comparative story, this also happens in other species, and it's, it's the, the product of several million years of evolution, then um, it, it sounds... Um, uh, like a plausible thing. Um, I should also say that the amount of work, so I'm not a, an, a, an expert on, on these Olympic sports, it took a, a huge amount of work to try and reverse engineer what led to this bias in the data generating process. It wasn't particularly fun. It was fun intellectually, but there was a lot of very careful work that had to go and talking to experts um, who could tell us how the rules change from one tournament to another. And that wasn't really fun <laughs> in the sense that it, it was really sort of painstaking detailed work. So generating the new, exciting, groundbreaking, in inverted commas, result is fun. Attempting to replicate it or look for alternative explanations is tedious and boring. It is. I can tell you that if you look at the two papers, as is a preprint, uh, the original paper had a half a page supplementary material. Mm. Um, so accompanying the original paper, we have a 60-page supplementary material. <laughs> so I think that gives you a... There's a broader sort of cultural problem about, you know, the lack of incentives to do the tedious work. That, you know, again, it's not just truth is a rare disease, do you think? It takes time. It takes a lot of effort. Mm. And so if you, if you can get away with not doing uh, the work, why would you do it, right? The incentives are stacked against doing that because... Um, yeah, we are rewarded for publishing more papers as opposed yeah. to publishing very detailed, mm -hmm. long papers. Marcus, what do you think of you know, truth is a rare disease? Because I see this, you know, Alexander is offering a, a fairly exculpatory explanation of what is going on, saying, you know, it may not be that the scientists are doing anything wrong or that you've got these big cultural problems. It could just be that truth is very, very hard to find. But I was suggesting, well, that, you know, there could be serious cultural problems too. Well, I think the two intersect. I mean, there are, there are other examples of the same kind of case that Lara's talking about. Um, so, for example, the, um, the astrophysicists who had a signal that may have indicated um, extraterrestrial life, and it turned out to be the microwave, right? And it was an artifact in their data. So the artifact, the, the microwave was pinging, and their equipment oh, was right, picking yeah. up that like signal. Like a microwave oven. Microwave oven, yeah, quite. It was, it was the lunch, basically. Yeah. You know, some, and, and, of course, there was a big uh -huh. spike in signals around lunchtime. But it took them a long time <laughs> to unpick, you know, is it ET or is it the pot noodle? And... Um, and it's exactly the same kind of issue. It, it's the painstaking work into looking at the data and unpicking it to find out that actually it's an artifact. But in that case, because they, 
knew that you know an extra you know ET phoning home was very very unlikely. They looked very hard at the data, whereas in this case they were able to because of mandrills and so on tell an elegant story. And because that's the bit you're incentivized for, tell a nice story that gets into a certain kind of journal, they kind of stopped at that point because there wasn't that pressure to really check carefully until someone like Lara and her team came along. So, uh, so I think the perspective that Alexander's bringing is very useful because it illustrates that um, if we're in a situation where truth is a rare disease, then we do need to change something. And what we need to change is the rigor that we apply before we make a claim and what may have changed over time is the rarity of truth because many of the conventions that Alexander was talking about, the 5% alpha threshold, the conventional value for statistical power of 80%, those conventions are 100 years old. So you think truth was easier to find 100 well, years in, ago? Well, in the sense that um, the, the low-hanging fruit was still hanging at that point. In psychology, for example, the really fundamental findings that are robust, like the, 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 the Stroop color naming effect, where it takes you longer to name the word red when it's printed in blue than when it's printed in yeah. red, because your brain grinds to a halt when yeah. you try and deconflict those two pieces of information. That's absolutely robust. That's, you know, 100 years old as well. So these conventions were developed at a time when the situation was arguably different, both in terms of the stuff that we were looking for but also in terms of the incentives, because over that 100-year period, we've been increasingly incentivized to go after the novel, eye-catching, groundbreaking results, which are a priori less likely to be true, and yet we're still applying these conventions from 100 years ago. So the world has moved on, but our ways of working haven't, and so we need to bring our ways of working up to date. And one of the reasons I don't like the, the crisis narrative is that it suggests that we can do a, a certain amount of housekeeping and fix everything and then walk away. But the whole point is that these systems are dynamic and constantly changing. And once we put in place new incentives, people's behavior is going to gradually shift around those. And we're going to have to constantly be reflecting on the ways in which we work and whether it's up to snuff. And if it isn't, then do something about it. This isn't a sort of one-shot, let's fix it and walk away situation. So you think you know, you've got this vision on which uh, truth is like a tree. And in the early 1900s, the scientists grabbed all the low-hanging fruit. And now you're up there on on ladders trying to get the last little bits and your so your picture of science is one on which that's just going to get harder and harder and harder and true hypotheses are going to get rarer and rarer and rarer until you know 10% of published findings are true or something like that so you think there's got to be a kind of constant process of increasingly rigorous standards forever right so p values have got to be lower and lower and lower forever so if you take the example of a mature science like physics, that's exactly what you see. You see this ever more precise estimation of various universal constants, for example, um, achieved through essentially the equivalent of, of larger sample size, larger colliders, and so on. Um, and there are some very nice graphs that, that show that increasing precision over time from extremely noisy estimates even you know, 50 years ago to incredibly precise estimates now. It's not just a matter of is something true or not. It's also a matter of estimating sufficiently precisely these very small effects. Um, so the effects that we look for may become smaller. Um, we're seeing that in... Uh, genomics, for example, we're seeing that in epidemiology, we're seeing that in a range of different disciplines. It's as much about precision as it is about truth, I think, but the, the upshot is the same, that we need to constantly be ramping up our level of rigor to home in on ever more precise estimates of what's really going on. 
Good. So we've got you know, quite a few factors in play now. We've got the truth is a rare disease factor, and we've got these cultural factors related to the scientist's temptation to construct narratives and to jump towards constructing narratives perhaps too fast. Um, and then we've got the, this concern about scientists using today the methodological standards of 100 years ago when, in fact, there needs to be this ratcheting, scientists getting more and more rigorous over time. Great at this point to take a few more questions on these diagnoses of where the replication crisis comes from. There's a question here in the in the third row. Please wait for the microphone to come to you so that we can capture it for the recording. Do the panel think that the refereeing of the submitted papers in journals is of an adequate standard? Nice brief question. It's hard to measure what, what an adequate standard is um, um, in the sense that as a referee myself, I put a lot of work into it. Um, so we don't mean your standards personally. But <laughs> well, but I, 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 I take that as, in, as, as, as I know many colleagues you know, take that work very seriously. Um, and in fact, you know, if you agree, it's all volunteer work effectively. So if you agree to referee a paper, the, the sort of assumption is that you're you're taking that work seriously. Um, I think one concern is that, of course, it's it's very time-consuming work, um, and the uh, what is uh, sort of the norm varies across different fields. For example, do you actually go and check all of the analyses? Uh, do you check the code that the authors have supplied? Do you have the time to do that, as opposed to just just checking the general argument? This seems plausible. This seems like a plausible interpretation. So. Um, I think it could definitely be improved the way we do things. Um, but it, it's, it's not straightforward necessarily how we do that. Should referees be paid? I've seen that argument made, and, and um, my gut reaction would be yes. Um, talking to somebody who's had this conversation in an, in, as an editor uh, with the publishers, it wasn't a matter of, you know, should they be paid? It's a matter of do you pay, not all reviews are equal, not all reviews report are equal, and so do you pay a substantial amount uh, for somebody who produces a very detailed report and somebody who just gives you a one-liner saying, yeah, this is fine, or no, this is no With good. With paying comes the possibility of, of a contract that says you've got to do this really carefully. Yeah, but then again, what, what is adequate, what is really carefully, right? It's, it's, it's not straightforward. I mean, I think payment is an interesting idea. Partly, I think it's appropriate to pay people for their time, um, but more importantly, I think that would serve to just slow things down a bit. And I think one of the problems with peer review at the moment is that we have to do so much of it um, because of, if you think of this in a kind of systems way, um, there's so much incentive to just be productive for the sake of being productive and without any particular eye on quality. So the other day I received four requests to review four different articles from the same journal in a single day. That's the, that's the scale of things at the moment. You know, people are being asked to review far too much because there's far too much. And our ability to do a good job is diminished by that. Um, the other issue, of course, is that peer review has never been perfect, and it's never going to be perfect. The idea that two or three people um, will happen to be the right two or three people to give an article a thorough going over it has always been a fiction. Um, and now what we have is far more scope for 
pre-publication peer review via preprint, post-publication peer review um, via various um, channels that exist like PubPeer and PubMedCommons whilst it did exist, which allow comments to be made much more rapidly and without having to go through the rigmarole of a letter to the editor so that the community's sense of how robust a paper is can um, be communicated much more rapidly. And that starts to move us away from the idea that a paper is somehow a finished product because that's a fiction as well, this idea that you, we do a study and we kind of allow it to enter the, the, the fossil record of science as a fixed thing that is never changing. Of course, the results change and, and the beliefs of the authors update and the beliefs of the community update. And so capturing that more dynamic nature of science is something that I think is now more possible given the tools available to us. But again, many of our ways of working, you know, by communicating essentially on dead trees via journal articles, are really outdated. So, Alexander, then, no. I just wanted to, to perhaps change, move the focus away from, or, or, as well as refer, refereeing, but also onto editorial, quality of editorial decisions. Um, because there, you, the standard way of doing things in journals, that your edit, editors are much more incentivized to publish your exciting results, which is a real driver of this, these kinds of. Uh, a problem. Some journals just simply refuse to publish replication studies because it's sort of boring. Um, and those seem to me to be reprehensible approaches and, and, and attitudes. Um, and so, one thing I so, so one way in which this is being addressed is by you know, our friend Chris Chambers' um, move towards. Um, registered reports whereby a study is uh, sent to a journal before it's carried out. So, so what, and I'm interested to know whether that really affects the quality of refereeing because the referee is focused entirely on as a, the question and the methodology which will be used to address it. And if, and if the, the referees think this is going, this will be, this is high quality you know, written into the, into the protocol for this, then there will be a conditional acceptance. If you do carry out your experiment as you promised to do so, then we will pu publish a result, whatever it is. And I, I, I think that may be good, not, it will, will be good because stuff will get published, not because the results are really exciting, but because the quality of the, the way in which it's being carried out. But I'm so also going to have like a groundbreaking right. idea for an experiment, yeah. but then if the result's negative, it still gets published. It still gets, it still gets published. But I wonder whether also that might sort of focus the referee's attention in the right place. I don't know whether that has an effect. Well, certainly one of the justifications for this format that, that Alexander has mentioned, this registered report, is that the referees can provide input at a, at a point mm. in the research cycle when it's still useful because right. the um, authors can actually change their designs, for example, if a valid suggestion comes in. So in that sense, it would, might make it more rewarding than the, the current model where it's about criticizing and, and uh, often, very often not much can be done um, because this research has been conducted, so you cannot change that. So in that sense, I, I do feel that it, it can make a strong uh, difference to, 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 to the peer reviewing, absolutely. Time for another question. Uh, There's a question from the, the uh, fifth row back, in the middle of the fifth row. <laughs> Please wait for the microphone to come to you. Still not sure if it's working, but on the off chance that it is working. 
Um, yeah, my question is also, I guess, to do with publishing. Uh, so I actually work for Jove, which is the Journal of Visualized Experiments. Um, and it's a cross-disciplinary cross uh, methodology article that publishes both in PDF and also in video format. Um, so the idea is that by visualizing experiments that you can see some of the finer details that you don't get just from writing um, you the, me the method out. So for example, you know, stirring the solution on with a stirrer or like swirling the, the um, tube. Um, do you think that by modernizing and changing the way we publish and also using technology that that can help to reduce this problem in some way? I mean, that sort of touches on the point I was making earlier, that, that many of our ways of working are quite antiquated and we have tools available to us now that we're still not fully utilizing that allow us to um, communicate how we will work and what we've done much more effectively, I think. So that's a nice example of that. And there have been cases of findings that have failed to replicate, and it literally got to the point where two researchers from two different labs were side by side on the bench, and it was at the level of, did you stir or did you shake? Oh, and then the results turn out totally different. And because we have word count limits, which again are a throwback to paper being expensive and our model of scientific dissemination being dead trees, that... Um, that we can't communicate that level of detail. Plus, it doesn't necessarily lend itself to that all being written out in prose. Sometimes it's more efficient to just demonstrate via a video what we did. So I think there are um, lots of innovations at the moment that people are experimenting with, like the journal that you describe. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what sticks. I don't think we need to necessarily wait for everything to be absolutely perfect. And equally, we don't want to proliferate too many ways of doing things. We might end up with VHS rather than Betamax, for example, to use a slightly dated um, uh, analogy. I have no idea what that means. No, quite. And almost <laughs> no one in the room will do. Sorry. I'm ancient. Um, you should hear me when I try and explain this to my students. Look at me blankly. Um, but the point is that, you know, we are going through this period of experimentation now where people are trying lots of different things. Some stuff will stick, some stuff won't. Hopefully, the stuff that sticks will make things a bit better than they are at the moment. But again, this goes back to my point that we aren't going to fix everything and walk away. We should be constantly looking to um, innovate, but also reflect on what works. There's a question from the, the fourth row, I think. Just in front. Can please wait for the microphone to find its way around so that we can capture the question. Uh, thank you. Uh, so. A lot of the evidence uh, that suggests that there is a replication crisis comes from these replication studies of the previously published uh, material. And for instance, the study for free journals of the open, I can't remember the name exactly, the open publication a couple years ago, um, did this large study where they took three different and tried to replicate find it there. But my might you not be worried that these types of studies actually over-exaggerate how bad the replication crisis is? <coughs> One is that these usually check very high-profile journals who, um, more than other journals, one might uh, suspect publish new and novel research, like you mentioned earlier, that might be lend itself less to um, proper replication. So novel journals systematically publish more things that cannot be replicated than standard, not perhaps not as prestigious journals. And secondly, why should we believe that, um, that 
replicators of these previous studies are better at doing so uh, or finding the signal than the original um, study makers because they have often spent more time and uh, years trying to perfect the, give a specific um, experimental setup and so on, whereas the replicators might not be as familiar with how it works compared to them. I mean, I'm happy to opine on that. I mean, uh, so you're right, of course, that a single failure to replicate is no more definitive than a single study claiming discovery. Um, in terms of the, the biases and the skills, I think that cuts both ways. So uh, a replication group might have less subject matter expertise than the um, original um, discoverers of a particular effect, for example. But on the other hand, those original discoverers might have a particular vested interest in that particular finding which I alluded to earlier. So that cuts both ways. I think any single replication project is unlikely to be definitive, but we, we actually have a lot of evidence converging from multiple different disciplines and multiple different approaches. Um, the candidate gene literature is one, which hasn't been subject to a formal replication attempt, but which has gradually shown um, a decline in effect sizes over time. Uh, we have the findings from the pharmaceutical industry. We have the findings from experimental economics. We have the findings from psychology. We have the findings from cancer biology. Um, no one of those efforts is absolutely definitive or perfect, but together they suggest that um, it's reasonable to assume that in most areas, something of the order of 40 to 50% of um, the published literature can be reproduced. Whether we can do better than that is an empirical question, and I think we need to be open to the possibility that maybe, actually, we are doing the best that we can do. I don't personally think that's likely because of um, some of the things that we've talked about. I think we probably can do better, and we should certainly always try to do better. But that's another reason why I don't think the crisis narrative is particularly helpful. This is just evidence that our current um, standard of replication, if you like, in terms of the proportion of the published literature is about this. Then the question is, what should it be? What's the optimum? And that's a slightly more difficult question. It is also true that, that in some of the cases we, we can have reasonable faith in the replication studies because... They're just higher powered. They've used more, more, more subjects, and therefore the probability is that it's that one which is correct. But you're right. For the reasons you said, it's difficult to draw general quantitative conclusions from these studies about what proportion of of science is reliable and what not. So yeah, it could be exaggerated perhaps for the reasons you said, but yeah, not so much that, as it were, the things that we've been talking about you know, just fall, fall, fall away. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, should we talk a little bit about solutions and about the way forward, this question, what is to be done? What, if anything, can be done to make science more replicable? Uh, I mean, let's start with, uh, with Laura. You, you're running a project, right? Reproducible Research Oxford. Oxford. So we're running a project in Oxford called Reproducible Research Oxford, which is trying to address some of the issues that we've talked about here. Um, and the focus so far has been really on training. And when we talk about training, my own take is not you know, advanced statistical training, for example, though that would be welcome. Sometimes it's actually really basic training that should be part of a scientist's uh, 
skill sets, for example, how you handle your data, um, how you store your data in a way that 10 years down the line you can go back and reconstruct where the data came from, uh, the provenance of the data uh, to ensure that the data hasn't been uh, edited in some way. So, so basic skills that we assume that researchers will pick up from colleagues or just through sort of trial and error, but really we can, we can improve that. So training in basic skills, I think that's a, that's a first step in my mind. An example of a, of a basic skill that you think scientists don't have enough of? Um, yep. So, for example, it's common practice in many fields to share your data in um, uh, shared folders that are hosted uh, on the cloud, for example. Uh, and that's great because everybody has easy access to, uh, to the data. Um, there are questions there about uh, ownership of the data, but also if the data are edited uh, because the collaborator adds, uh, adds more data, then uh, which is the original data file? If something changes, um, how, do you, how do you make sure that you can track which was the original data? So um, to give an example from another paper in my field, um, this was a paper published in 2005-2, which was eventually retracted uh, from Nature. And there was a lot of discussion among the authors as to what, was, what had gone wrong, one of the authors could not replicate the results. And what it boiled down to was that they could not reconstruct which was the original data file. So one author claimed that this is the original data file. The other author said, no, this is the original data file. You've actually manipulated the data. And this is, we should not be having these discussions, right? We should be having solid scientific discussions about how, interp how to interpret the data that we've spent taxpayers' money to collect and the time that has gone into analyzing those, those uh, data and interpreting the results. Not having discussions about who, uh, who has the original data. So it's about putting the data you know, online, freely available, as soon as possible, but in this you know, professional way that is actually saying you know, when it was gathered and actually what is the definitive version of this data. There are constraints, of course, about privacy, and um, it, it, you cannot apply... To humans, yeah, there's, there's, again, distinctive problems posed Absolutely. by humans. And so you cannot apply... So there isn't a recipe that applies to all disciplines, um, but we can certainly do better than I'll send you my data file over email, and we'll take it from there. <laughs> we can do better than that. I think you used a really important word there, which is professional. And part of the problem, I think... Um, can be traced back to the underlying culture in academia, which is very 19th century, with a lot of power located in individuals, and those individuals historically having been independent scientists who um, essentially passed through an apprenticeship whereby they completed a PhD, which is roughly analogous to making a nice cabinet at the end of your carpentry apprenticeship, and that being enough to mean that you can then go on to be an academic. And you can then carry on for another 40 or 50 years with no further training, essentially, beyond that which you choose to do yourself. It's a very amateur field. Um, do you think this sort of PI structure where there's you know, a principal investigator and this team in the lab, but not really any oversight of the PI? Well, not any oversight, but also no requirement for that PI to remain current in terms of their skills. Um, no CPD, essentially. So Malcolm McLeod, another colleague who, who works in this area and, and thinks about these issues, says that um, professional footballers have to do six hours of CPD a year. Academics have to do none. Professional footballers have to be part of a professional body in order to play. Academics simply need to have made a cabinet 20 years ago to be a professor. So footballers are more professional than academics are in terms of the requirement that is placed on them to remain current in terms of their skills. <laughs> 
we, we are deeply amateur in terms of our culture. And I think what's really interesting is the extent to which these cultural issues intersect with other issues that people are thinking about around diversity, around bullying and harassment. And it's hard for us to notice that from the inside because the whole thing about culture is that when you're on the inside of it, you don't notice it. But I think one of the reasons why early career researchers in particular are so animated about this reproducibility stuff is because when they come into academia, it looks weird in terms of those hierarchies and how it's structured and how much power is located within those individuals and the extent to which your career is within the gift of those individuals. And the risk we run is that we will lose the best people because they'll just go, you know what, I don't want to be part of this slightly weird culture. However much I want to go and do you know, good research and however much I'm interested in science, I want to go somewhere which has a slightly healthier culture. So what we need to do is retain the best bits of academia, the intellectual independence, the freedom for us to choose our research questions, but bring up to date our ways of working so that we remain more current and more appropriately skilled for the jobs that we have it's to bringing do. bringing in you know, these big issues of tenure and academic freedom, because right? there's one school of thought that says, well, it's, it's part of what academic freedom is, that the, the PI running the lab is able to do whatever they want, um, and that it would be totally inappropriate to you know, sack them or sanction them for, for not being up to date enough. I mean, do you see that side of the argument? Uh, well, I don't see why that precludes what I'm talking about. So, yes, you need to allow academics to have the personal freedom to choose their own research questions, but why can't you also at the same time incentivize them? I'm not necessarily saying that we need to straight away bring in some kind of formal CPD requirement, but you can incentivize certain ways of working within promotion criteria. So, for example, um, the Concordat on Open Data um, which institutions can sign includes within that the requirement that data sharing where it's appropriate is included within uh, promotion criteria and in order to be able to share data you need to be able to curate your data so that someone else can actually use them and that's a skill that you need to learn and if you haven't learned that during your PhD and you're now a senior lecturer well you can still learn that and then you can demonstrate that skill when you put yourself forward for promotion next time What about the people who are already professors? Are they write-offs? Um, so one of the problems that um, we are discussing in Bristol is what you do with pro professors given that there's nowhere for them left to promote to because that's quite demotivating. And if you reach that point when you're you know, 40, 45, for example, you've still got a lot of career left, hopefully, but where do you go from there? So um, that's another example of how our structures are actually arguably no longer fit for purpose. To add what Marcus has said, it, it's not just that we don't have an incentive to spend time uh, towards uh, professional development. We actually have a negative incentive to do so because, you know, a week spent learning new skills is a week taken away from writing an extra paper. So in my mind, we need to shift the culture a little bit from this productivity that means pr publishing a lot of papers to publishing fewer papers, high-quality uh, work. And um, I think, to me, that's going to be a real... In my mind, that's a real uh, um, point that we have to uh, uh, reach to, to sort of change the culture. Another aspect of the culture um, that Marcus was uh, uh, sort of highlighting is that we've adopted this sort of winner-takes-all model of science, right? You need to get to this great result that will make your career uh, when, in fact, we're dealing with hard questions, as, as, as Alexander was saying, and we can really benefit from collaborating um, in a much less competitive way. Um, so moving away from those... So this sort of hyper-competitive environment where you've got to sort of win grants to stay in business and 
to win grants, you've got to have more exciting stuff going on than, than your rivals. Yeah. All of that has to go, you think? I wouldn't say necessarily has to go, but we need to rethink how we do that. So, for example, in, in fields where researchers, well, PIs effectively are responsible for maintaining a wet lab, a wet lab comes with fixed costs. You need to pay a technician, you need to buy... Explain what that is. A wet lab is uh, um, people doing uh, research in... In, in a lab with, well, in biology, for example, with um, model, or, model organisms, but also genetic uh, work. And that's effectively not the kind of stuff that I do, which is computational. The labs uh, with animals. Not necessarily animals, but, you know, you could be doing cell cultures and... and uh, uh, Living tissues. Yeah. So you need, to, you need to pay a technician to do the work. Um, so, for example, so you have a fixed cost, and you need to get grants to pay those costs, and hence the competition to, to, to get grants. It seems absurd in a way, you know, that you have to win grants to keep the technician in a job, you know. There should be more stability than that. Well, in my mind, if, the, if your department has given you a job, then they should also provide the funds to take care of your fixed costs, and then uh, if you... If you do need a grant to do a specific research, research pro, uh, project, yes, that's, that's, that's a different uh, question than if I'm not getting that grant, then I'm, you know, I have to send my technicians home, I have to shut down my lab, which I think is a painting, pressure that people do feel. It's a picture of a sort of cutthroat world, right, where people running labs are, are on the edge. You know, they're like people running small businesses. These people all lose their jobs if I, if I go bust in terms of not winning grants. That's what I hear a lot. Uh, I am not in that world, luckily, but uh, interesting because, so for example, we don't, I don't do wet lab research, uh, but what I've observed is that in my own field, we've adopted the same kind of competition structure where you know, my costs are relatively limited. They are targeted to, I want to do this research project. I need the, I need the funds to do X, Y, Z. Uh, but at the same time, the prestige that comes with getting a large grant um, we've adopted that, um, and so there's an incentive to get these, these you know, big grants when maybe there isn't necessarily the need. Well, I mean, a cultural shift of that scale, you know, moving from a hyper-competitive model of cutthroat grant competition to something more collaborative, is that even possible? It, it, it feels like uh, pie-in-the-sky sort of stuff. Is there a pathway from where we are now to a kind of more richly collaborative culture? What is it? I mean, there are plenty of examples where that's already operating, and you mentioned one yourself earlier, which is CERN, where the scale of the infrastructure is such that there needs to be some kind of top-down strategic decision-making around what infrastructure is required. Um, and there are other examples um, in fields that are more directly relevant to what we've been talking about. So in genomics, for example, the fact that the effects we're looking for are small and that um, the ability of any individual group to detect those was essentially zero meant that um, collaboration was required in order to discover anything. And so now there is a culture of data sharing and collaboration and complex rules around authorship and very long authorship lists. But those teams are now generating much more robust findings as a result. And there has been, in a very short space of time, a really profound cultural shift in that particular field um, that, again, gives us examples that we can learn from. And that doesn't necessarily mean that we can just apply exactly the same template universally across other disciplines, but we can perhaps learn some, some um, insights into how we might want to shape things and move away from this essentially very kind of free market model of science that we have at the moment to something that's a little bit more shaped by the needs of society, essentially. Mm. And, Alexander, I mean, your thoughts on 
what science can do to make itself more replicable? I think, there, as we've discussed, there are multiple strands to the mm. problem or what, whatever it is. Um, yeah, so I, I certainly endorse everything that Laura and Marcus have, have, have said, but I think that if what I have said is um, right about an aspect of the problem, then well, a number of things will, would follow from, uh, from that. Um, the first is that um, it, when there is a failed replication failure, that you know, that can be bad luck rather than poor scientific practice. In the, in yeah. the in, and, you shouldn't and, immediately seek to blame the scientists. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, so, so you, when there's when such a thing occurs, there should be it should be less confrontational, and and, you know, and seeing what we make of these results should be more uh, more coll- collaborative. Um, if things don't change, then what it means is that one just needs to be simply more aware of what the positive result really means. And your positive result in a small study on a hypothesis didn't seem it seems rather surprising. You should take with a pinch of salt and and, and not just say oh, positive result. Should be marked in some way as being exploratory. Yeah. Um, and, and indeed, that's what what, what happens in in physics. You know, there's a certain level of uh, statistical significance is you know, thought to be evidence of something happening, and then a much more stringent one for you know, a, a genuine discovery. Um, but I think that, um, but that won't do. I think for, for all areas of science, I certainly don't think it would do for clinical medicine just to, to have because we want to in that area. We really want to know what works, um, and yeah, because it would be the basis of whether some you know, drug is actually put into. Uh, to, to, to market or or not, uh, and in those cases, I think well, it, it's it's as uh, Lara said, we want fewer papers of higher quality, and in this case means um, changing our alpha, requiring more st- stringent statistical standards. Um, that so there was a, there was a proposal, wasn't there, to change the alpha, as you put it from 0.05, so tolerating 1 in 20 results being false positives to being 0.005, you know, tolerating only point, you know, uh, far fewer results being false positives. Um, Do you agree with that proposal? Yes, but uh, we shouldn't... Yes, I do in certain areas in in, in clinical medicine because the problem is as... as, one can put more money into it, but what tends to happen is that particularly pharmaceutical companies will be chasing smaller and smaller effect sizes, which are maybe, we've got a big study and show that there is this effect. Uh, it's statistically significant, but it might not be clinically significant. But it might be useful for the pharmaceutical company because it shows that their version of the drug is fractionally better than another one. So that, yeah, and therefore that's all, what will get be, 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 be prescribed. But the social benefit for that might be very, uh, very small. Um, so, so what we want actually is more stringent standards for larger effect size rather than weak standards for small effect sizes. So that's yeah. So I think that that that. But on the other hand, what one doesn't want to end up with is as a a new standard that we unthinkingly apply. Um, so I think this is where yeah. Marcus's point about being dynamic. 
um, mm. comes into play. You know, it'd be wrong if we thought, oh, well, yeah. well, let's get fixed on this new way of doing things, and then we just apply that in a mindless Say so we've reduced our tolerance now of false positives, crisis over. Yeah, yeah and that, that's not mm. going to work because, you know, um, certainly in this era of big data, um, some of the problems that we haven't yeah. gone into in detail, like p-hacking, really are serious um, because it's just easy to generate you know, fancy, you know, good-looking good -looking results. And you know, there you will need to apply. You know, if that's what you're going to do, mm. look in the data for patterns, then you're going to have to apply yet further uh, yeah. higher standards before you're going to you take anything seriously that's brought about in that way. So the, the solution, I mean, you think is this complicated package of measures in a way, you know, improving scientists' basic skills, data management, trying to shift the culture of science to something less hyper-competitive, something more collaborative, and, you know, raising the standards of statistical methodology, reducing the general tolerance for false positives in a lot of scientific fields. Um, yeah, and maybe, maybe with all of those things together, you know, fewer than half of all published findings would be false. Yeah, I mean, it'd be great to take a few uh, final questions from the audience. There's a question just down at the end of the front row. Thanks so much. Um, I'm just curious about, um, because this is a philosophy forum, and I'm clearly Mr. Uh, Professor Bird is a philosopher, um, the extent to which in the field generally um, people are referring to philosophers to help them formulate their research questions. I mean, your example of the, the macaques and the color red seems to me, if someone looked at that from outside, that red is clearly a, uh, the, the connotation of red with danger is clearly a very culturally informed thing. And if you go to China, people get married in red. You know, so to me, that question would be ruled out from the outset. Um, there's also the Oxford um, introduction to game theory where um, the guy writing it says everything was going fine in the field until the philosophers came along and said where does the game begin so all I, I'm and I know John Broom is involved with the IPC on ethics questions in relation to um, climate change so all I'm asking is is there a, is there a result a role for, a greater role for philosophers generally, and as part of this research registration process, to, to get better, qu better quality research questions, not just better, better quality research. Um, is there a bigger role there for philosophers? And how, how, many, pe how many people in your field actually read philosophy of science? You know? <laughs> I can't speak for the field. I mean, I... Um... My undergraduate degree was philosophy and psychology, so I have a sort of jobbing knowledge, if you like. Um, and certainly one of my colleagues is very interested in um, inference of the best explanation and triangulation as a form of inference, to, you know, that, that sort of philosophy of science part, if you like, um, which I think does have a role to play because there's a danger that if we just go after replication for the sake of replication, we, we lose sight of the, the more fundamental question, which is have we got the right answer, um, as opposed to can we just simply recapitulate potentially a study which is wrong. Um, but no, I think you're right. I don't think it's something that is part of our wider training, and you could argue that that fits into the, the CPT discussion to some extent. To what extent do we need to create the time to allow, this is perhaps a better framing, to allow um, academics to be scholarly again? Because we're so busy and so rushed at the moment that we don't have the time to actually think anymore. And that includes bringing up to date our skills and our knowledge in a way that could include, for example, engaging with philosophy and philosophers to a greater degree than we have time for at the moment. Sounds great. 
Laura? My experience is that we don't engage with philosophers of science um, very much, and that's uh, to our disadvantage, really. Um, ways to bring more philosophy of science in uh, training, I think, is something that we need to work uh, uh, on. Um, to ask better questions, as you say. Yeah, absolutely. But also to take a step back sometimes, because you can get really sort of wrapped up in the details of what you're doing, and it's hard to see the forest for the trees. And so you want to be able to step back and have somebody that you can have those higher-level conversations with about, you know, does this actually make sense to you, as opposed to you know, me having, with all my confirmation biases, and having read one particular subset of the literature. So I think there is great scope and uh, great uh, potential uh, for doing that, absolutely. And of course, yeah, Alexander, you, you're entirely on board with all of this. Oh, entirely on board with it. But um, yeah. though, as you and I were saying just before we came out here, I, this particular party, we philosophers of science, have come a bit late, mm. um, and that's our that's you know, that's our fault. Um, but I just you know, a little bit of um, well, not quite self-promoting ad- advertising. I mean, you, the function of my job, or the core part of it, is to teach all first-year medical students at King's, uh, or King's Guys and Tommies, our combined medical school, the biggest in Europe, some, some philosophy. Mm. So yeah, they all get it, uh, whether they like it or not. Uh, half do and half don't. Um, but so more po- positions of this type. Yeah, um, but I think, I think that's exactly that right. I don't know if Peter Sowerby is, is listening, but he has more more chairs in philosophy and medicine, philosophy of science. And I think it does, does ex- exactly what Laura and Marcus were, were, were saying, that you know, it allows people your chance to be told that it's all right for you to step back and think about what you're doing rather than just go through the motions. I mean, that's a nice note to end on, I think, because it's something everyone on the panel agrees with. Um, if this replication crisis does lead to a greater role for philosophy in science, greater sensitivity of practicing scientists to the methodological foundations of their own field, I think that would be a great thing. It would be very beneficial for, for us philosophers as well as perhaps beneficial for the scientists too. My apologies if you didn't get time to ask your question to the panelists. They'll be around for a bit at the end. Uh, I'd just like to thank the sponsors of this event, the British Society for the Philosophy of Science. Thank all of you for your attention. And let's thank our panelists for a really interesting discussion.